life is not linear. If you're going to take on a really big, a really hairy, a really scary goal, it is going to be uncomfortable. But the process of, of being vulnerable, of being uncomfortable leads to to actually potentially accomplishing it, but also finding meaning in what you're going after. What is going on? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course have some fun along the way. For today's episode number 220, I am chatting with Valerie Allman. She's an ASICS discus athlete. She's also an Olympic champion. And I was so, so lit (laughs) for this conversation. Val and I first crossed paths this year at the World Championships, and we actually have a lengthy discussion about her performance at World. She went into that meet with a goal of snagging the gold and ultimately came out with a bronze. Now for Val, that has been something that has been emotionally difficult to work through. And of course, we talk about that. We talk about what it's like to fall short of your goals and the importance that is having grace with yourself when things don't go as planned. I really, really loved Val's perspective on this and her vulnerability in admitting that she aimed high and it didn't go as she'd hoped. She also shares with us how she got into throwing in the first place, not necessarily something she dreamed of doing from a young age. She ties some really interesting parallels between throwing the discus and one of her first loves, which is dance. And we also chat about her journey to body acceptance and learning to love her body and all that it is capable of as such a strong athlete. Val also shed some light on the type of training, what she's doing on the regular to be such a stellar discus athlete. And she also gives us some context, which is really helpful on what is a quote unquote good distance throw in terms of discus and also maybe dispels some of the myths or preconceived notions you might have about what it really means to be a discus athlete. I said it before, I'll say it again, the really candid way that Val speaks about her big goals, her aspirations, how she's felt along her journey, being the best of the best in her sport. It's a good reminder for me, and I would say it's a good reminder for us all, that no matter how, quote unquote, good you are, you're still gonna have bad days. And it is up to each and every one of us to pick ourselves up, and move forward knowing that there is more for us out there. Also, gotta toss a huge thank you into the mix to my friends at ASICS, Val's sponsor for helping to set this up. I am so appreciative. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on the socials. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at 
Emily Abadi. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Valerie Allman. She is a discus athlete. I'm like, I'm so amped to have you on the show. She's an Olympic gold medalist. She recently won the bronze at the world championships. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm so, so excited to be here with you and excited to chat today. I know. I'm amped. I know that you don't do many podcasts. I, you're, you're definitely right about that. This is my second one. So <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I like hunting for like the rare gems that need their voice in the Apple podcasts catalogs personally. <laughs> I I've been asked to do quite a few, but I always, I get kind of nervous. So I'm going to rely on you today to, to help me get my story out there. This is, this is my purpose is to make you more comfortable before we really dive in just so I have a baseline of where we're at. How are you really doing right now? How do you feel right now coming off of Worlds, leaving soon for your final meet of the 2022 season? Yeah, I mean, I think the the answer is a bit complicated. In some ways, I feel I feel happy and content with where I'm at. In some ways, I feel at the moment like I've left some things on the table this past season, which kind of pulls at my heart, but I'm excited to go after these last few competitions and then have some time to reset. I think that that's going to be really nice to kind of, to hunker down and, and also just like kind of shake off some of the the stress you feel when you're going after your passion to re- be able to really reset for, for 2023. This is definitely a topic I wanted to talk with you about because from the outside looking in, there was no doubt from both the content that you posted and the content that your coach shared that the both of you had just like these crazy big goals and dreams for what was going to happen at Worlds. And again, as someone looking in to see you podium at Worlds is so remarkable, notably because you're the first American to podium at Worlds ever. So to your point, right? I mean, it is so tough to fall fall short of big goals, right? But, you know, it is after the event kind of has passed that you can see some of the silver linings and the, the un, things that you wouldn't expect to find meaning in, you know? And I mean, as I said that loud, it does feel pretty special, you know? And sometimes when you're going for something and you don't get it the first try and, you know, it would have been really great to walk away with gold, but we make the joke now, the bronze medals just rose gold, but um, (laughs) have you always been this hard on yourself? It is my nature, you know, to, to be definitely self-critical and also struggle to like talk about accomplishments. You know, I think like it's so easy to always want more, you know? And I think like, as you get close to that, it becomes, difficult to be able to to focus on like what you've done to get where you are because there's always just that next thing and I think that's really like I feel like where with where I'm at in my career the number one thing that I'm struggling with is like being able to appreciate the accomplishments and the challenge that's led to to being to growing to maturing to being where I'm at but also not putting so much pressure that in order to be accomplished it's really the next thing that matters 
watching you and seeing the strides that you've made in your sport, I was so excited to have you on the show because A, I've never had someone that competes in discus on the show, but B, your athleticism really does. It's not summed up but what, by what we see out there. And that's really where I want to start us off because in order to succeed and do well in discus, there are so many things that we don't see that you have to work on. So can you talk to us a little bit about what training for your event actually looks like? Yeah, definitely. I mean, thank you so much also for, for branching out. You know, I mean, it is like hard to sometimes know how to talk about discus, right? When it's like not obviously the most common sport. So thank you for having me. I, I love to like share about um, what I do and, and what it looks like. So much of throwing is like a very technical rhythmic sport. You know, it takes about a second and a half to throw a discus, but your body is moving through a bunch of different positions where you're trying to build as much power as you can. So the number one way we train discus is by throwing the discus. We do a lot of that and we'll use different like tools um, to do it. So some, a discus is one kilogram. So sometimes we'll do underweight stuff or overweight things. And then we do a lot of Olympic lifting. Um, it's actually like one of my favorite parts of training is being in the gym and getting stronger, moving a barbell. Um, and then we do a lot of fitness things, a lot of biking, swimming, sprints, plyos. My coach has the philosophy that like in order to be a really great discus thrower, you have to be uh, a really great athlete. So it's really having a, a well-rounded kind of base of training that leads to, to being able to perform at a high level. Did you think before getting involved in discus that you wanted to get involved in discus? How did this kind of happen for you? No, it was totally by surprise. I think no one plans to be a professional discus thrower. You know, it's such a like... <laughs> There's like probably, I mean, there's actually like three women in the U.S. like trying to do it right now. So it's, it is pretty niche. For me, my story, it is like still so crazy. I ended up finding such a rewarding passion. Growing up, I was really into dance. There used to be a TV show called So You Think You Can Dance. And when I was going into high school, I actually got invited to travel with them. And it was awesome. I would go to high school during the week. And then on the weekends, I would go travel and, and be with the choreographers. And it was it was a really like special time. But my brother, he was a senior on the track team. And he said, you know, Val, I think you should do something that's also like part of the school. And I was like, yeah, that actually, like, I feel like that would be really great. So he went and talked to the track coach and she said, you know, just come whenever you can. I know you have other commitments. And I tried a bunch of different events, the sprints, high jump, long jump, and nothing really clicked. And the throwers were getting ready to have their annual spaghetti dinner. And they said that anybody that came and tried throwing could come to the dinner. And something about that got me. And I was so excited. I went and tried it and just found that I kind of had a weird knack for discus right from the start. And um, I mean, looking back, it's now definitely the best spaghetti I've ever had in my entire life. But <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny to me because even earlier, I believe that you described it as rhythmic. So clearly you at some point started to tie parallels between this thing that you were so passionate in dance and then this sport that you were just kind of feeling out. 
Yeah, no, totally. My brain at first was like, okay, this is choreography. My left arm goes here and my right leg goes here. And it did feel so much so like a dance when I was learning early on. When you started, do you remember any hesitations you had? The part of me struggled with, you know, the stereotype of being a thrower. I think I felt aware and honestly kind of what had prevented me early on was, you know, there haven't been like, there's just not a lot of positive role models that I felt like existed in the sport or that I truthfully really knew about at the time, you know, being a thrower was kind of like, you know, it, I've, at least in my high school, you know, it kind of made me feel like I was unathletic just by like doing the sport. And I did think I felt that in the back of my mind. But once I started doing it, it was actually like so fun. There was something so great about like how black and white it was, right? It was like just a distance where it landed. You could tell when you were getting better, right? It was so easy to track that once I kind of got past that notion, it only really ended up being energizing and, and such a fun competitive outlet. Aside from that stigma of being unathletic, were there other stigmas that were associated with throwing that we should be in the loop on? <laughs> um, I'm not sure there's like other stigmas. You know, I there's a movie called Matilda, you know, and I don't know if you know Miss Trenchbull, but she's like, of course I do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think like, unfortunately, Miss Trenchbull is like the stereotype, you know, and I think that that really like that captures what like when you are a, a 15 year old, 16 year old girl, when that's like what you're kind of being like, think you're you're trending towards. It's hard to feel <laughs> confident, you know. Um, but I mean, I think for me, that was really kind of the the biggest hurdle of like what prevented me from wanting to lean into it and, and let it be part of my identity at first. Right. So as this becomes part of your identity, as you get more involved with discus, do you start to lean away from dance or how does that balance out for you? Yeah. I mean, it, in about a year, um, I really started to lean way more into track and field than to dance. Um, you know, it, there is something that was so special about like doing a sport that also could lead to going to to college and to university was ended up being something that was really motivating to me. Um, you can go to, to school and, and study dance, you know, which is great, but to have an outlet that led to me being able to potentially go to a university where I could study a degree that I was really interested became such a driver for me and really led to me wanting to, to pursue track and field. Wow. So as you start to realize what doors the discus can open for you, would you say that you excelled at the sport early on? I think it, it there was something that was a really natural fit, especially early on about with discus and, and kind of the way my body was and, and what my previous experiences were. I was so motivated. I mean, you know, me being a competitive person, I loved that because it was such a measurable, measurable sport. I could go online and see like what everyone my age was throwing, you know, and being able to track that and, and wanting to improve on that list. Um, it was, it led to me wanting to like continue to push and want to continue to learn to be able to try to, to climb up that list so that I could really help my chances by the time I was a senior to go to a school that I was really, really excited about. 
And you mentioned earlier that there are a few women that are trying to come up in the ranks now. When you started out, was there a plethora of people to compete against or did you feel like the field was really narrow? I mean, in in high school, it's actually, I mean, it is such a popular sport and thousands and thousands of girls, you know, throw the discus around the, the nation. And I mean, now I'm so aware that thousands more throw it around the world, which is actually really cool. But I mean, it kind of, it sorts itself out in order to, to make it to university, right? You have to be in that top few percent in order to try to make it as a professional. You have to be in the, the narrowest of margins in order to really be able to make it a living. But I think that's just the nature of right time and, and what it takes in order to really be uh, at the top of your craft is just being as devoted as you can to want to make maximize every little bit of potential you have. What did you decide to study in college? I studied mechanical engineering with a focus in product design. Casual. <laughs> <laughs> did you foresee this being more than a sport that you played in college or did you foresee yourself going down a path of utilizing that degree? I totally thought I was going to use my degree. Um, I I honestly thought discus would help me get to college. And I mean, I was really excited to compete for Stanford and, and want to be part of like a team and, and do well. But I very much so thought that, you know, the degree I would study would end up what I would end up using, you know, for, for my time after university, um, that it really ended up surprising me, you know, now looking back that I'm still throwing the discus and it's also incredibly rewarding. Um, but it's one of those things where it's kind of just, sometimes you have to let life guide you. And even when it doesn't seem like maybe what you should be doing, you know, obviously I, I've, was super excited to, to use my degree and had some exciting opportunities, but it just, it didn't feel right. And sometimes you have to, to trust your heart when you pursue a different path. Were you trying to fit your school into your training schedule or your training schedule into your schooling? Gosh, that's such a good question. I think during, at the time, I felt like I was more trying to fit my training into school, especially like at first, you know? I mean, so much of like how you become influenced, right, is just what you're surrounded by. And at Stanford, it was incredible to be around so many people that were brilliant and so devoted to their passions, you know, and in, and being in such an academic place, right, like the focus was on academia, that I think it felt like the thing, right, to like obviously want to prioritize school. And I love learning. It was like incredible. But, you know, something about like athletics and particularly discus for me always ended up like pulling me more into the sport. Um, and especially like, you know, it's so hard to fight the feeling of like, not just passion, right. But like results, you know, when you feel like you are getting closer to, to being who you want to be or that accolade that like you've seen in the future and want to chase, I think that that is what like discus has been for me is because it is such a an objective sport, right? Like when you do hit big milestones, when you walk away as uh, a champion or a winner or an All-American, right? It doesn't even have to be about winning. You know, it feels so good. And discus just always had a way of bringing me back. And I think by the time I graduated, um, school was always important, but it was definitely 
a bit more of figuring out how school can fit into training. Yeah. And about that, about the setting big goals and going after them and envisioning what your potential could be. I think it's important to note that that ebbs and flows and those goals shift over time. So to your point about really thinking that you were going to leave and use your mechanical engineering degree versus what your goal shifted to be, that's really powerful to be able to have that honest conversation with yourself. Wouldn't you agree? Oh my gosh, totally. You know, and I I think sometimes it also takes like, you know, finding a mentor that can also help you realize what you're capable of. It's like, it's so easy to think like on a small scale, you know, of, of what you think your potential is, right? Or, or think too big, you know, and not know how to close that gap. But when you find yourself in a situation where you're moving like consistently in the direction you want to go, that's when I think you have to lean into it, you know, but that you are, that does totally ebb and flow. And it's about recognizing like if you're consistent in your lifestyle and your choices and what you're prioritizing, it'll always end up coming back to you and you'll keep making traction. But it is, it is scary, you know, to lean into something when it, you know, it's not going to be given to you for granted. It's interesting. Your point about having to recognize when maybe you're thinking too big. That gave me a moment of pause. It made me wonder, is that a thing? Like, yes, it's a thing, right? But who's to tell anyone what too big really is? Yeah. The truth is, I I feel like it's human nature, right? Like you end up telling yourself, right? At some point when you have doubt or fear, right? That like, you're the one that's streaming too big, you know? And I think, unfortunately, that's the voice that like, is the scariest to hear, but it doesn't mean it's right. You know, like being free, being willing to like, let yourself think those things is so important. It's essential, right? If you actually want to get even close, you know, sometimes coming close to like, a crazy goal is a huge milestone. But it is so easy to get in your own way. It seems as though if I was to bring us back to the top of our conversation that you're in that position right now, not to skip around too much because I do want to talk about the beginning of your career, but to think about this massive accomplishment that you just had, like you dared to dream so big. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. I do. I feel really proud of of what the accomplishment of our, our 22 World Athletic Championships was, but, you know, it's, it, it's me, it's making for a meaningful journey, you know? And at the end of the day, I think that is what I hope I feel at the, the end of my career, at the end of, you know, my life, right. Is that like, it's, it's been a journey and a special one. And I definitely think, uh, my time in Eugene made for, for some moments that are going to make it all the more impactful when I look back on my time as a, a discus thrower and my time on this planet. <laughs> it got deep. So back, so back to looking back on the beginning of your career, talk to me about what it was like to graduate college, knowing that this is the basket that you wanted to really put your eggs into. What did that look like for you? And how were you finding financial support stability during that time? So at the time, I had just turned down an offer to go work full-time at Microsoft and was deciding to be a discus thrower. My 
I had a coaching change happen before I was going into my senior year. Um, Zebulon Zion, he's actually my career coach. He took the job at Stanford and it was really with working together with him that I found like one, someone that just like saw so much potential in me, which was really exciting, but also was helping me like figure out how to actually like accomplish that, which was awesome. Um, that season I improved by like, I think it was like almost 14 feet, four meters and, um, earned a spot to make my first world championships, which was like a, a really big step and kind of in development. Um, and as I was graduating, I think in my heart, I found that like the number one thing that I still felt like I wanted to accomplish was becoming an Olympian. Um, at the time it was 2018. So I felt like in two more years, I would be in a really good spot to be able to, to earn that, that title. Um, but then everything went crazy. Um, Zebulon ended up getting offered a job at the University of Texas. So within like a week of graduation, I was moving down south and all of the familiarity I knew of the Bay Area was totally gone. Um, so I found myself like honestly starting from a, a pretty, pretty clean slate relative to figuring out what life was going to look like as an elite discus thrower. and there really was not a lot of financial support. You know, so much of it was a huge leap of faith to think like, okay, if I can have a good season six months from now, right, I can be able to to earn money and kind of be able to cover my costs. Um, but it was relying on USA Track and Field. I was so fortunate to be sponsored by a company called Wazelle, which really believes in empowering women. They have like an incredible bond um, and culture that they call their sisterhood. And they provided some financial support, but it really was just trying to come up with the lifestyle of training, recovery, nutrition, learning things that like I didn't have the time to do when I was at Stanford to just be able to be consistent and healthy um, and working with with my coach to to figure out like, okay, how can we, now that this is like all that I'm doing, how can we continue to really like make huge strides? And it ended up being awesome. I improved another three meters that season um, and felt like I really was actually like going to be able to to live and survive as a professional discus thrower that first year. When did ASICs come into the mix? ASICs came into the mix in January of 2021. At the end, well, it was actually kind of truthfully in the middle of the pandemic. When the Olympics got postponed and we were just training with kind of really no objective, um, one meet ended up materializing. It was a super small meet in Idaho. And I went with my coach, my mom and my tiny puppy at the time came. And there was five people in the discus competition. And I ended up throwing the American record at that meet. It was a super small, intimate setting, but it was so special to be able to feel like that time period of just like putting in the work of like renewing my passion ended up materializing in such a, a special moment. ASICs then came into my life and they wanted to sponsor me. And, you know, it's been incredible. They've been so authentic and genuine. They've really cared about like my well-being, which mm. has been awesome. And it's been such an incredible partnership 
um, that's led to some really special moments. And I feel so lucky to be with the brand. In the exposure that I've had to ASICs, it seems like that's a through line that like they care about my whole well-being and knowing that their whole tagline is sound mind, sound body. How would you say that you give back to your body when you're off the field? I wholeheartedly believe that the body follows the mind. Where you're at and where your headspace is, like that will totally lead your life. I think for me, it's like, it's just reconnecting with like, with your roots, reconnecting with the other parts of yourself that for me isn't sports, you know, whether that's like my dog or going for a walk or cooking a new recipe or being with friends and family. It's like those smaller connecting pieces of life that end up giving you such deep meaning. And for me, it's that's really how I've tried to find balance. Before we go on, I think it could be helpful if you give some context as to what your farthest throw has been. And maybe if we could kind of get an understanding for what an average throw could be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. My personal best I set in April of this year and it's 71 meters and 46 centimeters, which I think is 234 feet. Um, and that was actually the farthest throw in the world in the last 30 years, which is pretty crazy. Just so to put this into context for the listeners, a football field is about 300 feet. So you are throwing 232 feet, which is in my eyes, essentially almost a whole football field. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continue. And then an average throw. Yeah. In order to be like top 10 in the US, you probably have to throw like 195 feet to 200 feet. It's probably like what would get you to like top 10 in the US. Is that helpful? Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, you're 32 feet beyond that. So really, you are just really impressive is what I want to make sure that we demonstrate here with these numbers. Thanks. <laughs> so in moving down south from the Bay Area, I could imagine that that also came with some challenges. I mean, being in a new area, what was it like for you to try to find community there? Did you feel lonely? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the loneliness was absolutely like the number one thing I, I felt. It really was like a tough way to figure out how to make friends, you know, because I think so much of culture now, right, is like going out and that social aspect wasn't something that really was going to like fit in um, with the lifestyle that I was trying to like dive into so much. Um, so it was honestly kind of like a slow way of like making friends of just like, <laughs> at the grocery store or, or friends of friends and trying to connect with them. Um, but over time, I've built some really great, meaningful friendships. But that first six months was really tough. And um, I FaceTimed with my family so much, friends, and just kind of was trying to get through it day by day um, when I was in a, a place with no familiarity. How did you cope with that? Like what strategies did you implement or was there anything that you became aware of that helped you navigate that feeling of loneliness? Looking back, I, my mindset was just to like maximize the day, you know, maybe I feel pretty unhappy with like aspects of my life currently. Right. But there's still so many things that I can do to find value or to create meaning in my life, you know, and 
I found ways to fill time, right? Of like things that I just hadn't been doing, right? Like for going for a walk or trying to meditate or going to the grocery store four times a week. You know, so much of it at first was kind of like a a survival mindset to get comfortable with trying to discover and explore this new lifestyle. But it was also just like, kind of like I was saying of relying on people that like knew me that were positive that could, you know, just give some optimism, right? That like, this way of being was going to pay off. And it also led to really bonding with my coach a lot more. I mean, he was the one that was working with me daily. And, you know, he could see that I was really trying just to like figure it out. But when he would give affirmation, right, that like he could see I was improving or getting stronger, I was more rested, powerful, ready for training, like all of those tiny little things that I was trying to figure out how to work on, optimize, knowing that that was yielding result felt good. So I think loneliness is such a hard thing to combat, but if you can find ways to make yourself feel like you have value, it it can really help kind of get through that until you can find a sense of community. Yeah. For me, pre-pandemic, I started to really explore what it felt like to choose to spend more time on my own. Mm. And in doing that, I created and come back to something that is not, I'm not the first human to do this, but a joy list. So Mm. when I have time or when I am feeling a little out of sorts and I am spending time by myself, maybe by choice or because no one's around, I'll go to this notebook that I have this list in and I'll choose something that I know makes me happy to do in that moment. And it's not rocket science, but it helps and it works. And it has taught me to embrace the time on my own and that I can make my own joy. I don't need to rely on others to source it. I love that. And honestly, yeah, you're so right. You know, I think I didn't know myself really well, like at that time, right? Like all my life experience were, were built around other people, right? Like family and friends. And now I had this time period to kind of figure out who I was, you know, what do I like to read? If I have like a whole day to myself, what do I want to do? You know, and it can be uncomfortable figuring that out. But like, when you do find those sources of joy, it's so powerful, right? It's like, you know, knowing who you are, like your heart, your core, your soul, it feels good, but it is such a a scary process to discover. It is a scary process to discover. So it would seem as though that time period right before the pandemic probably really prepared you for what was to come. Totally. Totally. Yeah. You're, you're so right. I mean, I think if the timing of it ended up being really great, um, but yeah, I, I mean, when you're living it, right, it's so hard to know how your experiences are preparing you for what's to come. But I definitely feel grateful that I got moved. I got set up. I had that time to kind of be able to figure myself out before total adversity struck. When that struck, where were you and what were your feelings? I was in Austin. Um, I... I was truthfully pretty devastated. I think for me, the biggest thing that I felt was I was in training really well. I was really excited with how things were going. And we were about four months away from Olympic trials and like five months away from 
what was supposed to be the 2020 Olympics. And I was just devastated. You know, I, I felt like it's, it's so hard to become an Olympian. It's so difficult, right? That like, you know, you can get injured, you can get, you can just have a bad day. Right. And like that dream can just like fade away for four years. Right. So you get the chance to do it. And I felt that at that point, like I was doing all the things that was trending towards earning a spot, um, on team USA. And at first they, they really weren't sure if the Olympics were going to be just postponed or if they were going to be canceled. And I really was struggling of like, gosh, this like dream. I feel like I've like put all of my eggs into this basket is now like, is it gone? You know, like, is it going to be like four more years? Is it going to just be postponed? Is it like, I, I just was struggling of like, you know, finally track so many goals, you know, it's like such a clear date, right. Of like when you get to like do it. And now it was just, a complete unknown as to what was going to happen. And that really, really rattled me at first. Yeah. And it's understandable that you felt that way. You are spending all of your time working toward this goal. And when that goal becomes something that's completely out of your control, it is scary. On top of the fact that the world is in absolute chaos, right? Yeah, absolutely. As time progresses and it still feels shaky, things still feel so unknown, what are you doing to cope and are you still training? So the first thing I did, I was like very sad and I started looking at puppies online. Love that. And I ended up getting a dog um, at the beginning of April. Um, so just like a month into the pandemic, totally got a pandemic puppy. Her name's Ollie. And it was actually like, when we talk about sources of joy, she has been one of the best things in my life, you know, like having just such a, a bundle of energy to come home to like during that time, it like totally helps it with the loneliness. So that wasn't the first thing that really like ended up impacting my time during the pandemic. Um, but then my coach also, we kind of like the first couple of weeks were unsure of like how to plan training just with not knowing if there's going to be any meets the rest of the season. And eventually he was like, you know what, Valerie, like we're going to get fit. We're going to get strong. We're going to like maximize this time and just like work on some technical things. Like we haven't had the time to do because of competitions. And we, that honestly, that summer ended up being one of my favorite times I've ever had as a discus thrower. It just was so great to end up like reconnecting with the sport. It wasn't about like that big meet coming up and it wasn't about like really improving distance. It was about like becoming connected with my body, feeling things that I hadn't had the capacity to feel before getting strong, getting fit. I like that. I was so proud of like the shape that I got into that summer that it led to me finding a, a different sense of confidence and composure as an athlete that had those big competitions been what had happened in that summer. I never would have been able to, to find. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, my friends at Element. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I cannot even imagine what 
My steamy summer runs would be like without Element. It is the first thing I look forward to drinking in the morning as I'm gearing up for my Saturday long run. And also the first thing I run to, maybe not as fast as before I tackle the long run, once I get back inside. For those that may not be in the loop, Element is an electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. It's got the perfect ratio of electrolytes while cutting out sugar, fillers, gluten, or other dodgy ingredients. And it is critical to my hydration strategy. I personally love to recharge with their watermelon salt flavor after my runs, but they have other amazing tastes ranging from citrus and raspberry to orange. My friend Willie just the other day told me chocolate is his go-to. So many options to choose from. And of course, they have a deal for Hurdle listeners. Head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get a free sample pack with your purchase. Again, that is drinkelement.com slash hurdle to get a free sample pack with your purchase. Also got to give some love to my other summer running go-to, Gooder. Gooder is the maker of some stellar sunglasses that are no bounce, all polarized and lots of fun. They are my cannot leave the apartment without it when it is sunny out pick. I am obsessed with my gooders, not just because they stay in place no matter if I am sprinting to the subway or around a track, but also because they are affordable and they look pretty stylish. Seriously, I am reaching for mine, not just when I'm active. I'm also reaching for them when I'm running errands or if I need to choose just one pair to travel with. It is my Gooders every single time. They are so multi-purpose. Of course, Gooder has a deal for you. You can get 15% off your next purchase by heading on over to Gooder.com. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash hurdle and use hurdle one five at checkout. Again, that is gooder.com, G-O-O-D-R.com slash hurdle. Use code hurdle one five at checkout to get 15% off your order today. Talk about uh, a silver lining in retrospect. You talk about feeling really fit and really confident in your body. You also earlier at the top of this, kind of joked about what people think a discus thrower would look like or could be like. As you said, a lot of Olympic lifting, way more, I would argue, than maybe other track athletes. Talk to me about what it feels like for you to feel at home in your body and how it's felt for you maybe to navigate what the stereotypes could be as a discus athlete. Truthfully, it now with where I'm at, I do feel like so grateful to be in a spot where I do feel like happy and content with like, not just how my body looks, right. But like that it has purpose, which has been something that like I've, I've had to learn, right. That that is like something that should give you a ton of gratification about how you feel about yourself. But I, I really did struggle just with body image and, and trying to figure out like what the sport was going to shape me into, you know, I think it's like hard to be told that like, you know, if you want to be a a good thrower, you got to be like a big 
sturdy girl. And I just, I never believed that that was like how it had to be, but you know, it took finding also a coach, right. That like believed that and, and could help me like train into something that was, was strong and powerful. Um, but it's been, it's been really special to be able to kind of reshape the mold of what being an elite discus thrower is that you can be long, you can be lean, you can be strong and be able to push the boundary of the sport in a way that hasn't been seen in a long time. I'd love to talk a little bit about coming into this place of body acceptance, because regardless of what your shape is, I feel like this is something that every woman deals with at one point or another, and even men too. For you on your journey to this place, what would you say was a landmark moment where you really started to appreciate your body for what it was capable of, regardless of what it looked like? There's kind of two things, I think, when you say that. I think for so long, I thought that being healthy was just about like food. You know what I mean? And I, I do think that that is like such a big part of health. Right. But like there's 10 more layers to just like eating healthy. Right. Like I, I really dove into actually like the education part of like understanding what my body needs, you know, and when you take a sense of like responsibility and accountability for what you can control. And for me, so much of that was like understanding what protein sources I could have or how much fat I need. Um, did I actually start to like be able to kind of shape the way that my body was developing? And it felt so good. It felt so good to like be able to see change, to feel change, but it was only by putting in like that effort and awareness to it. I think the other thing is like, when you are an athlete, so much of like what people are going to judge you on is like how you look. And that is an unfortunate reality of just like, I think being a female in sport. And I've really wanted to, to continue for myself to be able to, to know that like what matters, right. Is like not other people's opinions, but truly like when you wake up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth, when you see yourself, right. Like how do you feel about like what you see? And it's been difficult to be able to continue to focus more on that. Um, but I think I've, I've found that it is about like the overall lifestyle, right? Like I, bodies are just like big bags of bones, right? But like the care you put into them, like it matters, you know, like waking up and like just feeling energized, feeling like excited. There was like a long time where I just felt like dull, you know? And it's been like such a, a full process to be able to get to a point of like wanting to take care of, of your body. And, you know, that's something that I've really tried to dive into. And there's days where like, I feel so gross, you know, it's like, I just, you, you just can't like see the good, but it always like fades, you know, it's like, it is so easy to let your mind kind of play tricks on you about, what you, how you feel and, and what you think you see, but it is just about like trying to be consistent and, and put in that extra love and care to bond and fall in love with, with who you are and, and what you can take care of. You said that it can feel harder sometimes, especially maybe these days to base your opinion of yourself 
on how you feel or what you see in the mirror. Why now? Do you think that that goes hand in hand with being on this larger stage and finding more success in your sport? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it is sometimes I I feel aware, right? That like, I, I feel so fortunate for the things I've accomplished, but sometimes it is crazy. You can just be like, have such a, like a delicate, critical mindset. You know, sometimes I feel like the highs are, are so high, but then the lows feel really low, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you're the underdog, it's so fun to try to be like chasing down the people you've, that have been ahead of you to, to earn, you know, take one step up, you know, to, to feel like you're like, becoming a master in, in, in ways, right. That like you can control, but when you're at the top, like it's hard, it is hard. It becomes about perspective, right? Like I want so badly to like continue to improve, to continue to win, to continue to like feel confident in in who I am, but like you just can get rattled. You just can get rattled and it happens so quickly. It can be like in a comment on an Instagram post. It can be in an article that can come comes out. It can be because like you have a bad practice, right? Like the pressure, the expectation you feel. If you don't manage it, if you don't like have ways to to deal with it, whether that's talking to people, whether that's like being able to just like have thick skin, it is scary the the impacts it can have on you and and how it can shape you if you're not ready for it. How do you navigate it? Part of it is like just continuing to know that there's going to be a tomorrow and there's going to be more experiences that can keep giving you perspective. I think for me, the biggest thing I've done is like I keep a really tight inner circle. You know, the people I'm close with, they really know me. They like I know they've got my back and they see me as more than just an athlete. And that's been super helpful to be able to have my people that I can just rely on and connect with. It's it's hard. I think I'm honestly still trying to navigate it. And I mean, we talk about hurdles. This this world championships, it's been a hurdle. And I don't feel like I've had my like time yet to to show my like redemption period yet, you know? But I'm still trying to figure it out. That's I think that's the truth. And I think that I'm actually okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) The question arises, you said redemption period. You also, as we mentioned earlier, discus Olympic champion. What are you fighting for redemption from? Before World Championship, this article came out and it was kind of doing like a discus preview. There was a line in there that said like, Valerie Allman is the Simone Biles or Serena Williams of the discus throw, just like completely dominant. And I read that and like, it was an extreme compliment, but like, I didn't like, I don't, something about it made me feel like anxious. Like, gosh, am I like really that person? I don't feel like I'm that person, you know, like winning the Olympics was like an amazing a amazing like accomplishment and so exciting but like I I don't know how to like embrace that type of persona you know in this sport now it's like obviously Simone has not been undefeated and Serena has not been sported has not been undefeated and that is just like part of sport and I think for me in redemption right it's like I want to just be like consistently competitive you know and I think that because discus throw in in the last 30 years 
it's and we we call it like the modern area. Um, it's been really hard to push boundaries, and I'm excited to continue to try to like push those. But it's just being able to get like back on the horse and just compete again. You know, winning feels really great, but so does competing. You know, like I love being in the fight, and like that can feel just as good regardless of like what the result is. It's about like the preparation, the excitement, the energy, the sometimes the sacrifice. You know, but like. When you've done those things, then you get to a point of getting to see where you're at. It's one of the best feelings. And I think for me, redemption is like continuing to make those choices that like when it's time to fight, I know I can put my best effort out there. My best effort out there. You know, it's interesting to hear you say like, I don't know if I'm ready to be at that level because if you weren't ready, then you wouldn't be performing the way that you are. And there doesn't need to be a Simone Biles in discus or a Serena in discus. There can just be a Val in discus. And what a great opportunity that is for you to be the person who paves your own way, who makes your own name. Yeah, no, I like that. I really like that. I want to touch briefly on the Olympics and that feeling, how it felt for you to finally realize a dream, not only to become an Olympian, but to do it to such fanfare and to such a degree of excellence. Talk us through what it felt when you realized what you had actually accomplished. It was such an incredible feeling. Now looking back, right, it, the path to become an Olympic champion was filled with so much adversity. And, you know, I thought that my dream was going to be like totally deferred that when it ended up materializing, you know, that like magic moment happened, it was, it was like incredibly special, impactful. The pride that I felt has been like, honestly, it's been uncompared. You know, I think it really has given me such a, a badge of honor that like, I, I'll always feel of being able to, to have that magic moment. Talk to me about the difference in how you felt going into the Olympics versus how you felt going in to this summer's world champs. Mm. I've done a lot of reflection over this, I promise. And <laughs> it's, you know, going into Tokyo, I think I was like, my coach has come up with this. He said, you know, we've said like I was the unproven favorite, you know, like going into it. I think there was still a sense of like wild and freedom. I felt of just like, I'm going to go for it, you know? And like, if I fall short, that's okay. Right. Like earning an Olympic medal will be like my first time ever being on a world podium. That will be incredible. Um, that I think I just like, I still felt pressure. I still felt expectation, but it wasn't like overwhelming. You know, the Olympics is, is a, it's an animal, you know, like when you're in on that stage, it is really intense, but I had, didn't feel the same expectations that I then felt going into world championships. And I wish now looking back that I had taken some more time after Tokyo to kind of decompress when you win an Olympic title, like it does make it feel like your identity is like being the best, you know? And I think I dove in too hard too quickly of wanting to just like train and be better and feel like I could maintain that title. And by the time I got to world championships, I think 
it wasn't as authentic as like I needed it to be. You know, I'd been putting up really good results all year. I'd been competing up against like the best of the best at that point. And at World Champions, I like I threw what my average was like over the last season. Like I competed well, but I didn't have that fire to rise up. You know, I like mm. I, I played it too safe. Right. I didn't have that like wild component that like I needed to be able to find that throw that was like three feet farther that would have ended up winning and I think I've learned that like you know you can't be comfortable you know you gotta like always figure out how to like push the boundaries to be able to figure out how to like flirt with that next gear so that when you're in that moment you know you can go for it and I just I don't think I tapped into that enough over the last year your reference earlier of Simone and Serena not always being undefeated anymore just because they are Simone and Serena, just because you are Val doesn't mean that every single day you're going to show up and hit it out of the park. And that's okay too. That goes back to our conversation on the importance of grace and maybe not always being your biggest critic or being a little less harsh on yourself. It's not easy to adopt that attitude because we want the best, but in our experiences. And as we overcome these different hurdles, that understanding is absolutely critical to being able to function and keep going as they, the hurdles keep coming. No, you're so right. You're so right. And I think it's like exactly what you're saying. You have to be willing to like keep running, you know, like stopping is like actually what prevents you from getting to where you want to go. Right. But like figuring out how to take that next step to like work through it, to keep figuring it out, to keep like learning is how you become like that. You don't have to be a Serena and you don't have to be a, a Simone. You can be whoever you want to be. Right. But like that journey is only ever found by like continuing to try. Right. And I think that that is just you you said it really well. I'm excited to keep being uncomfortable. I'm excited to keep figuring it out. And, you know, I know there's thankfully, you know, it's actually pretty great that there's still a lot left to learn. And <laughs> I'm I'm excited about that part. What's that saying? It's like when you're tired, rest don't stop. Mm, yeah. I like that. When someone comes to your Instagram page, they see a discus Olympic champion, a very fit athlete with 108,000 followers. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Oh, gosh. I, I see someone that is proud of who she is and the life that she's like trying to live. I think... I see the cracks of like doubt and fear and uncertainty, but I also see like the very like human side, you know, of like wanting to be a good daughter, wanting to be a good friend, wanting to be a good dog mom, you know, the very like human side things of it. You got into it a little bit, but the next question really is who is Val outside of discus? Uh, Val is definitely like honestly pretty shy um, I think I am someone that's like really genuine really like kind of nerdy um, but really like devoted to the things that she's passionate about um, if I'm like the people that are my friends or my family right like I would do 
absolutely anything for them. Um, I love learning. I love cooking, reading. I love being outside. Um, I love like really deep, meaningful conversations. Um, and I love, truthfully, I also like love do maximizing like my body. You know, I love working out. I love sweating. I love being in the sun. I love like working towards a purpose. When you think about all that you've accomplished, you've set some big, hairy, audacious goals, as Shalane Flanagan calls them. Hmm. For anyone else who is trying to go after their potential that's excited to set big goals of their own, what advice do you have for them? Hmm. I think my biggest piece of advice is like, you have to know going into it that life is not linear. If you're going to take on a really big, a really hairy, a really scary goal, it is going to be uncomfortable. And the person that you are at like the start of this journey is going to end up like really evolving and changing if you want to get there. But if you can focus on the journey over the outcome, you're going to be so happy and so much more fulfilled no matter like what the actual goal is you're going after. But it is really like the process of, of being vulnerable, of being uncomfortable that leads to to actually potentially accomplishing it, but also finding meaning in what you're going after. You said that you are the kind of person who loves deep, meaningful conversations. And I would assume that after the world championships, you had just a few of those. When you think about the advice that was offered to you during that time, working through and processing your emotions after being on the world stage. Does anything come to mind? I The number one thing I felt after was like, people were so excited. You know, it is, it is hard to fall short of your goals, right? But like, sometimes it is so healthy to let go of what you feel and let yourself be impacted by the people around you. Mm. Like after 24 hours after the competition, I was like proud. I was happy. I was feeling excited to celebrate what had happened in Eugene, but it, it was like hard to let go of what I felt and let it actually feel like such an accomplishment, you know? Mm -hmm. And it is like, you know, it's okay to come up short of your goals. It is about the process. It's about the journey. It was about like being with like my favorite people, you know, in Tokyo, it was so hard to be in an empty stadium, you know, but to like have my family there cheering was incredible, right? Like that, like it became so much more than about like the place, about the distance, about the competition and really about like being able to celebrate the the con what had happened there with the people I cared about what excites you right now what are you looking forward to once the season is done kind of diving into more like those human parts of my life my um my brother and his wife they're expecting and having a baby shower so I'm so excited to get to spend time with them um I'm so excited to go to Colorado and and be with my parents I'm excited to just like eat dessert for three meals a day. If that sounds, <laughs> <laughs> sounds fun. You love it. Yeah. All right. Right now you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice. Looking back on the evening after 
your third place finish at world championships during that hurdle moment, what do you tell yourself? I would tell myself that I'm proud of the way you fought, you know, that putting yourself in it is hard to do. And knowing you gave it all is sometimes the best you can do. And you should feel really good about that. You should feel really good about that. You should feel really good about that, Val. I'm so happy that we were able to make this happen. And I really appreciate you for opening up and sharing your story with the hurdlers. Speaking of the hurdlers, how do they follow along with you? How do they keep up with you? Give us your details. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have loved this, Emily. And <laughs> honestly, I'm so excited to connect with with hurdlers. Um, if you're interested in, in following along, you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is vallman123, which is V-A-L-L-M-A-N-1-2-3. Perfect. I am over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>